San Francisco. We're coming to see you soon. Yeah, we're going to be there on Saturday, January 18th, Chuck. And since it's San Francisco, we're going to be wearing nothing but appropriately placed clumps of rice aroni. It is the San Francisco treat. Yes, and we're the San Francisco treat, too, whenever we're in town, so everybody should come see us. That's right. It's part of Sketchfest. As always, we love performing there. You can go to SYSKlive.com for details or SFSketchfest.com. Uh, and if you're around Sunday night, you can come see me do Movie Crush Live in a very small, fun venue where you can shake my hand. Very nice. So come see us, everybody. You won't regret it. We're pretty sure that's correct. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bright, and there's guest producer Lowell over there. Uh, and that makes this stuff you should know. Um, featuring Chuck as John Travolta and me as Christian Slater. <laughs> Why do I Lowell always got to be Travolta? <laughs> Lowell is uh, Frank Whaley. Uh, was he in that? Yep. He had the great line. Are you ready for it? Sure. I don't know what's scarier, losing a nuclear bomb. He didn't. He didn't say this with this much reservation. He really <laughs> delivered the line. Um, he also didn't comment on his own line while he was giving it. <laughs> okay. Or that it happens so often. There's a name for it. Yeah, well, that's a good line. It's a great line. It's it's a long, clumsy line, but he delivered it really well. You know, I don't know that I ever saw Broken Arrow. Oh, I didn't either. I was just alive in the '90s, so I was cognizant of it. Yeah. I thought at first you were talking about Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> With Christian Slater. Sure. He was uh, great No, no. I wasn't. Do you remember we talked about Saturday Night Fever? It must have been in the disco episode where it turns out that the article it was based on was just totally fabricated, remember? Oh, that's right. That's such a great soundtrack, man. Maybe one of the all-time best. It's great. Yep. But we're here to talk about Broken Arrows. And uh, I got this idea, this was one of my commissions, was because uh, I had um, I had someone on Movie Crush, then we did Dr. Strangelove. Nice. Uh, the great, great movie from Stanley Kubrick, which factors into this stuff some. And he brought in a stack of papers and just said, here, for your desk. And it was a list of all the Broken Arrow incidents. Wow. And there were a lot more than 30 of them. Uh, so I don't know if what all was included. We'll get into some of the terminology of what kind of falls under the banner of a broken arrow. But mm-hmm. uh, but a broken, well, we should just go ahead and tell everyone what a broken arrow is. Yeah, we should. As defined by the Department of Defense and a little bit from the Air Force. is an accident <laughs> involving a nuclear weapon or warhead or nuclear component uh, or an unexpected event involving nuclear weapons that could result in um, – Accidental or unauthorized launching, firing, uh, what else? Uh, detonation. Uh, yeah, jettisoning them. Sure. Jettisoning them, uh, damage to them, accidentally dropping them. And I mean, I've got to say, I don't know what's worse, accidentally dropping a nuclear bomb or that it happens so frequently there's a name for it. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Whaley. Sure. You can go to your trailer now. So that's a, I mean, that's a broken arrow and like there's a, if you've seen that movie, Broken Arrow, it's um, about Christian Slater foiling John Travolta um, for after he steals a nuclear bomb. That's actually technically not a Broken Arrow. From what we know, that's called an empty quiver. 
which works with the broken arrow. But I thought it had to do with a stolen nuclear bomb, which led me to think like, hey, man, we've basically already done this one. We did how easy is it to steal a nuclear bomb. Remember That's that right. episode? Okay, this is really very much different. This is basically when a U.S. military personnel screws up big time as far as a nuclear bomb is concerned, or there's some terrible accident with a nuclear bomb, but um, it's not something that's going to lead to war, right? It's not like an accidental launch of a nuclear weapon against the Soviet Union back in the Cold War. It's dropping a nuclear bomb on your toe. That's a broken arrow, basically. Yeah, and I've always thought broken arrow. I was wrong. I thought it kind of only meant that you lose a nuclear warhead somehow. Well, that's what Travolta's lies. I know. He's the father of lies. <laughs> that's what he teaches us. Yeah. We've been misled by Travolta. Yeah, have you seen him? He's He's gone bald now. Have you seen him? Good for him, man, has he? Yeah, he finally just just ripped off the old rug, said, this is me, and he's got a great bean. He looks fantastic. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm happy for him. That's good, because he's been hiding that for decades. So, uh... We should talk about a few other points of terminology uh, that might pop up. Uh, there's something called a pinnacle level incident, and that basically uh-huh. means that any kind of incident where it's so big that it, it really goes up all the way up the military chain to the very top. Yeah, it's a big deal, in other words. or It's a big deal, as Travolta <laughs> would say. Uh, and there's a few more incident codes that I think are pretty uh, interesting. Um, there's one called a nuke flash, and that means... Uh, an accident or incident that could be the precursor to the trigger of nuclear war. That's a big one. That's the Yeah, that's the one where there's like somebody accidentally sets off a, a intercontinental ballistic missile toward Russia. That is like one that can lead to nuclear war. And did you read that as nuke flash? I read it as nukflash. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Thanks. Uh, what about front burner? Yeah, front burner is triggered by any hostile, it is pinnacle level, and is triggered by any hostile attack against U.S. forces, uh, and it's not necessarily a nuclear incident. No, but um, it can be, it can lead to a nuclear war, so it's kind of considered part of that whole family of nuclear jargon. Yeah, and I also don't think I said it's a hostile attack by someone that we're not already at war with. Oh, that is a big caveat because I guess yeah, if you're if you're already at war, it's front burners like, everywhere. It's front burner, front burner. There's another front burner. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's that's a good point to make, dude. Um, there's also empty quiver, uh, which is that's the name that should have been given to the Travolta yes. Slater movie. Correct. Um, that's where the the nuclear weapon is stolen. Um, and I, I gotta say. I don't know what's scarier, that a nuclear weapon can be stolen <laughs> or that it happens often enough that there's a name for it. Uh, did we go over Bent Spear yet? No. Not to be confused with Burning Spear. No. Uh, a Bent Spear is an incident, nuclear incident, that's a big deal, but it's not pinnacle level. And this is like if someone violated a regulation or a procedure or something uh, mm-hmm. when you're storing or transporting a nuclear weapon. Like, it's like a, a Three Stooges level type of nuclear accident. Okay. Um, where nothing nothing really bad results from it. Uh, it's just somebody screwed up. And Ed gave this example. I had not heard of this one. But apparently in 2007, there was a burning spear. I'm sorry. That was genuine. There was a bent spear mm-hmm. incident 
um, where six armed nuclear warheads were loaded on a B-52 and they walked away slapping the dust off of their hands and turned in for a good night's rest and did not leave a guard. These six armed nuclear warheads were left aboard a B-52 that was unguarded overnight. Wow. And the next morning they flew them across the country as scheduled. Okay, so nothing happened. No, it's like one of those ones where you find that you've bitten down to your cuticles. You're right. Because you're just so mortified at the idea of how bad things could have gone, but they just, just we just narrowly averted crisis. All right. Are there any of these other terms that matter to you? No. Okay. Not at all. All right. Well, we'll talk about, uh, we'll go over some broken arrows later and some actual incidences. Um. But we should talk a little bit just about nuclear weapons. Uh, they are very much classified as to where they are. And uh, the upper brass basically has an exception to that, where if there is an incident and it presents a, a, a hazard to the public, like, mm-hmm. boy, we need to get people out of there and we actually need to cop to this thing, uh, right. then that is an exception where you can reveal that they're like, surprise, you, you're living near... Uh, some <laughs> nuclear warheads. He didn't realize it, but over right. there in that silo, it is it is not wheat. I get yeah, I get the impression also where you know seven hundred and fifty soldiers suddenly converge on a a farm field where a plane went down. Um, it's it's usually kind of already old news to the locals that there's a nuclear bomb uh, somewhere in play, especially if this happens to take place during the fifties or the sixties, which were the the worst decades in American history for near-miss nuclear accidents. Yeah, and it's interesting. I never really uh, – I kind of just thought like, oh, it's because technology. And that's sort of mm-hmm. true in that uh, in the 50s and 60s, if you wanted to drop a nuclear bomb, it, that's why they say drop a nuclear bomb because you were literally doing that. It was not attached to some missile on some base. It was in the belly of a plane. And yep. you flew over a site and opened doors and dropped a bomb. Yes. That's like the only that's way how to you do delivered, it. Right. That's how you delivered a nuclear bomb. And so because planes were so intimately connected with delivering a nuclear bomb early on in the Cold War, there was a guy who took over Strategic Air Command in, I think, 1957. And he was an old bomber pilot. And he said, look, man, here's our new strategy. We're going to keep bombers loaded with nuclear bombs in the air at all times. There will always be multiple B-52s flying around with loaded nuclear weapons all the time, ready within striking distance of Russia. And so this thing was called Operation Chrome Dome, where pairs of B-52s would take off for 24-hour missions. Mm -hmm. They would refuel in the air. There would be multiple pilots aboard so that they could trade off shifts because they would stay aloft for 24 hours. And then before they came back to base to land at the end of 24 hours, another pair would have taken off. And from what I saw, um, at the minimum of Operation Chrome Dome, there were always at least four B-52s in the air flying these routes, like near Russia. Um, Usually there was 12 in the air. And then during the Cuban Missile Crisis at the height of Operation Chrome Dome, there were 75 B-52s in the air with nuclear 
weapons ready to strike at any given time. And because there were so many planes taking off and landing constantly with nuclear bombs, the chances of an accident with one of these nuclear bombs escalated tremendously. And that was these dec- the, the decades that Operation Chrome Dome lasted um, when these nuclear weapon problems, what we call broken arrows, really kind of stepped up. Yeah. And I mean, that's if you've seen Dr. Strangelove, that's what that, uh, you know, there's kind of three parts to the story. And one part is up in the air in one of these bomber planes. And that's what Slim Pickens and James Earl Jones are doing up there. They are just uh, manning a flight that is flying close to the Soviet border and uh, hoping that they just land and take off again the next day and fly. And it's boring and they land again. And mm-hmm. like I said, the idea is you do this over and over and over and nothing ever happens. Um, but, of course, in Strange Love, things go wrong. Um, but, that, yeah, that's what they were doing up there. Yep. So that's Operation Chrome Dome. And um, eventually the, we developed intercontinental ballistic missiles, those ones that you talked about, like in, in the ground in a base. They were capable of striking Moscow from Kansas. When we developed those in the 60s, we said, okay, we don't need this chrome dome strategy any longer. But also because there were so many accidents and because the accidents were so colossally bad and yet still just near misses from a nuclear explosion, um, the idea of this chrome dome strategy was like, we, we can't do this anymore. This is just too too risky, basically. All right, should we take a break? I believe so, Charles. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how a nuclear bomb works right after this. All right, Chuck. So, if you're, I think we should do a nuclear um, bomb episode someday. Yeah, where did we go over this? Was it during the, the meltdowns episode? Yeah, it must have been. On like a fission reaction? Yeah, because it does seem pretty pretty familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, because, uh, you know, what a nuclear bomb is, is is detonating and instigating or causing <laughs> a... It's always starting stuff. ...a fission reaction. Um, well, know, that was the early ones, right? Yeah, yeah. So okay. how this works is a nuclear reaction is plutonium and uranium... Um, being compressed and smashing into other plutonium and uranium to get a nuclear fission reaction going. Right. Uh, And the early, uh, I guess, H-bombs is what they called them initially, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Hydrogen bombs. Well, atomic bombs, I think, initially. Yeah, atomic bombs. They were very rudimentary. rudimentary. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, not sure they tried to there. dress them up by adding an extra <laughs> syllable, but they were still rudimentary. They were rudimentary, uh, and in fact, the uh, the very first bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima actually fired a gun type mechanism to set off this reaction. Right. It was like yeah, they would shoot uranium at uranium, and <clears throat> that that would set off the fission reaction. And like you can produce a a pretty substantial. Um, explosion, like they did over Hiro- Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
But compared to the other way that they later quickly figured out, I believe in the 50s, they moved over. I think those were the hydrogen bombs, thermonuclear bombs, where they used fusion, where it was an implosion that pressed the the material, the plutonium or, or the uranium together to create this nuclear reaction. That's when you got something in the yield of megatons, millions and millions of tons worth of TNT explosive power, where the one in Hiroshima was like 15 kilotons, like 15,000 tons of um, TNT. Yeah, and thank God they hadn't figured that out at that point. Yeah, because those earliest broken arrow ones were like, Dude, if like if if this had been like a fusion bomb, who knows what would have happened? Although I can't tell if if one was safer than the other. And Ed rightly points out the reason all these were near misses was because along the way scientists thought we need to include some fail safes here so that if something does go wrong, um, a a cascading string of multiple failures have to happen in a certain order for this thing to actually go off. Or you have to make it so it purposefully happens in this order for it to actually go off. And that if one thing doesn't happen in this this cascade, then the thing won't actually have a nuclear detonation. And the, the fact that these scientists worked in these safety mechanisms, that's what kept like South Carolina and North Carolina from having entire towns leveled in nuclear explosions accidentally. That's right, because uh, what happens now with this implosion, it is... Uh, this nuclear material is packed and surrounded by high explosives, just mm-hmm. regular conventional explosives. And this is, you know, these things go off and they create a big boom in and of themselves that is very dangerous. But like yeah. you said, there are so many safety features built in. And unless you have that um, that exact implosion pattern that you need, mm-hmm. it, it might be scary, but uh, these high explosives going off don't necessarily mean that there will be that fusion reaction and if it gets shot like let's say somebody you know somebody bombs your bomb that does, doesn't necessarily mean and probably means it won't happen it will it will again be a big boom and but it will break apart that nuclear material and just scatter it around it's not going to compress it in the way you need to create that fission reaction no and that that's what a dirty bomb is it's where you're you're not creating a nuclear explosion but your explosion is spreading radioactive material that contaminates an area, which is bad enough, but it's not nearly as bad as an actual sustained nuclear explosion. And because the the nuclear bombs were made in such a way, like you said, that explosive pattern has to happen exactly just so, you're probably not going to get that same pattern if that those explosives go off from hitting the ground after being dropped 15,000 feet or in a uh, burning in a jet fuel fire from a crashed jet. They'll, they'll still explode, like you were saying, but it's not going to create that nuclear explosion. Yeah, but it no, still will make you bite your fingernails oh, sure. to the cuticle, though. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll go will. up that pinnacle chain. <laughs> right. Um, I'm also not sure about how bombs are now, but uh, I know that for a while, and maybe that's still, still the case, they're just physically distanced. Like, those explosives... Are, are not right next to the nuclear capsule. And that distance can actually help prevent those nuclear explosions. Yeah, or there's like um, an, electro, uh, an electronic circuit that has to be completed for the detonator to go off. 
And so if even if it's exposed to flames or impact, it's still not going to go off because it's detonated electronically. There's like more safety systems that they worked in. But initially, one of the earliest ones they had with those imploding H-bombs was that they just simply wouldn't put the core of the nuclear material that was to be imploded in the bomb. It'd really just be like a 5,000 or, you know, 20,000 ton bomb mm-hmm. of high high yield explosives, of high explosives, but the nuclear core wasn't plugged into the center. So it might be on the same plane, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't plugged in, in at least some cases. In other cases, in the, the military used that, the, the, the uh, core wasn't inserted into the bomb at the time, excuse, very frequently <laughs> yeah. to basically say there was really no chance of this becoming a nuclear explosion. But there's a lot of debate about just how true that is in some of these instances where uh, some of these were fully armed nuclear bombs that just so happened we lucked out that the uh, the um the pattern of explosion with the high explosives didn't follow the right the right pattern to set off that that nuclear reaction yeah and again um these protocols came about in the 60s and 70s which is why most of these if almost all these broken arrow incidences were in the 50s and 60s uh, mm-hmm. In the 1990s, I think in 1990, there was a technical report uh, on the safety of our arsenal conducted by independently by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and they very and this is great for for you know the general public and dum dums like us. <laughs> they just gave it like a school rating, <laughs> like A through <laughs> right. F, basically right. on yeah. uh, all the all the weapons that we've used from 1950 to 76. And uh, or no, I guess up until the 90s. But every weapon from 50 to 76 received a D. Yeah. Except for one. And that that one was the Minuteman 2 and it got a C plus. A C plus. C plus. Which is pretty nice, especially among D's. But everything but else just, got a D for 26 years. Right. That just got it just goes to show you like just how poorly these things were um safety mechanized i guess yeah but even still even despite you know like they still went to some extent to make them safer but they they just hadn't gone far enough and yet despite that we still didn't manage to accidentally blow ourselves up with a nuclear bomb despite all the broken arrows that we we have gone through which we'll now go through should we take a break and then go through some of these or Sure. Do some, then take to a get break. That little word play in. No, okay. no, we'll we'll take a break. <laughs> All we'll right, take a break, right? Yeah, we'll be right back with broken arrows. Okay, Chuck. So we, um, we, as far as we know, the military will cop to 32 broken arrows in the history of the atomic age, as far as the United States goes. Um, other countries have their own, and apparently the Soviet Union had at least as many, if not more, than we did. That they um, cop to, which, yeah, if you've seen Chernobyl, you, you know that there were probably like hundreds more. Yeah, yeah, and and possibly the same for us. It makes a really good point that you know the once the intercontinental ballistic missiles came along and we didn't need Operation Chrome Dome anymore, 
Broken Arrow's all but vanished. But it's also possible that the military just decided, like, we're just not going to publicly announce these things any longer. Yeah. Which is t- entirely possible. Who knows? But as as far as it goes officially, there have been 32 Broken Arrow pinnacle incidents that uh, have happened in the nation's history. And some of them are just absolute doozies. Yeah. So we'll go over some of these. Um, I guess we can start with the first one just for nostalgia's sake. Uh, This is February 13th, 1950, a B-36B Peacemaker bomber uh, Mm. set flight from Alaska. And this is just a training mission uh, where they want to simulate a nuclear strike against Russia. Right. But they did have a big bomb on board. It was a 5,000-pound bomb uh, with just conventional explosives. It wasn't – or at least the Department of Defense and the Air Force say, and we're going to be caveating all these because, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we can only say what they told us. But they said that there was no plutonium core on the plane. Um, but this is one of the planes that uh, took off, had engine trouble. The crew bailed out and set off the bomb in the air and then bailed out of the plane. And the bomb luckily uh, went off over the ocean. Right. And this this kind of strikes at the core of a lot of – these accidents, like whenever you hear about, um, like, or whenever you think about why haven't we been obliterated by a meteor or something, it seems like the world is just full of people, but there is way more empty land and water still than there are massive amounts of people. So sure. the fact that we haven't been hit by the big asteroid or that a lot of these bombs go off in places where there are no people, it is lucky, but the, the stats are also in our favor. Yeah, it's either that or we're living in a computer simulation, one of the two. (laughs) Exactly. We're in the Matrix. (laughs) So um, that was the first one. That was in 1950. And the fact that the government says there was was only like a um, a, uh, – what what did you call it? Uh, Like what was the kind of um, flight it was on? Uh, Just like a training mission. Training, yes. So there's a training plug inside (laughs) of the thing. It's made of lead rather than plutonium. Right. And that actually – probably holds up to scrutiny because in the early 50s, they, that's the kind that they were using. They were small enough that you could send one of the pilots or one of the co-pilots or somebody to the back to actually arm the nuclear weapon with the, the plug. And if they were on a training mission, there really wouldn't be much use for that. Right. So that probably was a non-nuclear bomb that went off. But by the the late 50s, the, the government had moved on to much bigger bombs and because they decided that they needed to be hair trigger ready, they were armed. Despite what the government says, these um, type of bombs that they moved to are called sealed pit weapons, where that core was inserted and then the bomb was sealed and then it was loaded onto mm-hmm. the plane. So the plane was flying around with a, a fully active, ready to go nuclear bomb. So anything starting in the late 50s onward is suspicious if the government's saying that it wasn't an active nuclear bomb. That's right. Very true. Here's another one. <laughs> and we're just kind of picking through these. I think Ed gave us like 17 or 18 to choose from. Well, I thought like all 32 were on here. No, no, it just seemed that way. Uh, this one in March, and this represents sort of one that's uh, happened a few times, which is where a plane and the bomb in the plane will just vanish. Mm-hmm. Never to be heard from again. And that happened on March 10th, 1956, with the B-47 Stratojet. Uh, it was supposed to refuel in midair over the Mediterranean Sea, uh, but the plane never showed up for that dinner date. And uh, they never found the plane. 
and it had two nuclear yeah. capsules, and they were never found either. And um, that was, I think, 1956, you said? Yeah. If you fast forward a little bit to 1958, that was a really, really bad year for Broken Arrow incidents. Yeah. I mean, if you're a fan of Broken Arrow incidents, it's a great year. But for the rest (laughs) of us, it was a bad year. Um, From January 31st to March 11th, there were three. So in less than six weeks, there were three Broken Arrow incidents, two of which were among the most famous Broken Arrow incidents ever to take place. The first one produced what's known as the Tybee bomb. You've heard of the Tybee bomb? Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, there was a B-47 that was on a training flight, and since this is 1958, it's entirely possible that it was a fully active nuclear weapon that it was flying around with. The government says no. Other people say it absolutely was. But um, the on the training mission, the B-52, or I'm sorry, the B-47 was... Um, came in contact with a fighter jet that was also training and pretending to attack it, and they accidentally knocked itself out and knocked the B-47 out. The The B-47 crew ejected. They jettisoned the bomb, and for weeks afterward, they looked around Tybee Island to find this bomb, and they still to this day haven't found it. Yeah, Tybee Island, which is off the coast of Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you said that the, the F-86 was pretending to attack. It was a just like a training thing? Yeah, yeah, and it got too close, and I think took its own wing off and, and crippled the B-47. Do you think um, that's because the it, pilot was going pew, pew, pew the whole time? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> he wasn't paying and attention. And it, it was a Mark 36 bomb, too. This is really important. It was a four-ton hydrogen bomb that may have been fully active and is just somewhere, off, like, right off of the coast of Tybee Island somewhere. And if you've ever been to Tybee Island, this explains quite a bit about Tybee Island, <laughs> that there's a four-ton hydrogen bomb just sitting right off the coast. Now, what does that mean? Are you knocking Tybee? No, I, I think love Jerry Tybee vacations for, there. for what it is. Yeah, t- Jerry loves Tybee. It, it's a great place. It's its own place, and I love it for that. What it's I, also super-duper weird. Well, what I can't figure out is why they can't find this thing. That just seems... It just seems impossible to me that you can't find this, given that Tybee is not the hugest place. Uh, no, I agree. I, I think it's just one of those needle in the haystack things. By now, it's probably been covered with so much like silt and sediment, they they may never find it. But I read this really interesting article, and there's been a lot of articles written about this search. There's a guy who I think is a former Air Force uh, commander. I can't remember what he did in the Air Force or mm-hmm. the military, but he um, he got interested in the idea of chasing down these lost broken arrows, and um, he searched for the Tybee bomb, and he claimed to have found it at one point, Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure what happened with that, but this article called The Saga of the Tybee Bomb, it was by Roger Pinckney in Garden and Gun Magazine. Yeah, I think places. I read that. And, oh, he really played up the, the Southern thing, didn't uh-huh. he, in his writing? Oh, <laughs> yeah. my God. But it was good. It was a good article. But he interviewed a, a shrimp boat captain. Or, no, he interviewed the nephew of a friend of a shrimp boat captain who on his deathbed says that he found the bomb and said exactly where he trawled it to and then cut it loose when he realized it was a bomb and never told anybody. Uh, or he did try to tell somebody and they ignored him. But... um he kind of left this legacy of potentially where the bomb is. And he said it was right off of the dock of the Coast Guard post on Tybee Island. Oh. Well, maybe they never found it because it was after his long list of uh, shrimp recipes. <laughs> it's possible. Fried shrimp. Shrimp Newberg. <laughs> shrimp Newberg. <laughs> that was a great, great movie. Was it? Was it not? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think Forrest Gump has aged well. 
Oh, really? I'll have to go see it then again. Yeah. I thought it was a sweet movie. Yeah. All right. We'll take, oh, okay. I, okay. We'll take that up later. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's go with another one in 1958, another very famous one on March 11th when the United States Air Force, uh, it was a B-57, I'm sorry, B-47 going to Britain and it had an issue with the locking pin on the bomb bay doors. There's a story supposedly that uh, one of the co-pilots went to fix it movie style by hitting the uh, fault light with the butt of his gun. Right. <laughs> it's like right out of a movie. Uh, the yeah. plane's captain, just like, and this may have been uh, a big inspiration for Dr. Strangelove, because if you remember in that movie, Slim Pickens, there's an issue with the Bombay doors, mm-hmm. and he basically rides the bomb, and uh, very famously at the ending, uh, wearing his cowboy hat right out of the Bombay door. <laughs> but the plane's captain uh, climbed into that Bombay to go check things out and accidentally pulled the emergency release lever uh, or pushed a button that he shouldn't have pushed, uh, depending on who you're asking. The bomb dropped. These doors were closed, remember, but this is a four-ton bomb, so it just smashed right through those doors, fell 15,000 feet, and blew up a farm in South Carolina. Yeah, like they bombed South Carolina with a nuclear bomb, and just by the grace of the nature goddess, there was no nuclear explosion. That's right. I mean— but a big boom. Yes, a huge boom. And it actually ruined the farm of the Gregg family, the Walter Gregg family. And he was he lived bitterly the rest of his life because he finally sued and got like 36 grand or something like that, which even at the time wasn't enough for him to rebuild his house and his farm. And no one died. That it was just miraculous. But um, se- several members of his family were injured and had to go to the hospital. Um, but it was a big deal. It left a, a crater that's still there. It's in Mars Bluff. South Carolina, which is not too far from Florence, but it was something like five miles from Florence, something like that. And had this thing gone off, it would have um, wiped Florence right off of the map. Wow. Uh, yeah, it would have been a really big deal. And this was just in a nuclear accident where somebody accidentally dropped a bomb on a farm in, in South Carolina. Uh, this other one in 1958, and you are right, there were a lot in 1958. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this one in November was pretty bad. It was a B-47 crashed. Mm-hmm. It just seems like there were nuclear planes crashing all over the place. Because there were so many nuclear flights taking yeah. off and landing every single day. I guess so. Yeah. And they were moving the bombs like from one place to another constantly too. Well, this one crashed in Texas and it was carrying a nuclear weapon and the mm-hmm. Air Force kept this one classified for a long time. Um, but it had enriched uranium. So they they figure it was a sealed pit weapon uh, that mm-hmm. was armed and the high explosive uh, did detonate, but there was no nuclear explosion again, um, hopefully because of these fail-safes. But the kicker here is uh, there was uh, an environmental cleanup. This was in 1958, and the Air Force said, you know what? We should go in there and clean this stuff up uh, because it's 2011. <laughs> right. That's how long That's they waited to clean the site up. Yeah, and apparently they grew grain and fed cattle that grain on this land that was a nuclear disaster site. Because, again, like the 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 bomb, the nuclear bomb might not actually go off, but those high explosives are blowing the nuclear material all over the place and just totally contaminating the area. And they didn't do anything about it for, for what, uh, 53 years while they were feeding cattle grown on the, the land there. That's crazy. What else you got? 
So there were two incidents that kind of brought um, the uh, Operation Chrome Dome era to the to an end. Okay. Um, remember, we said the intercontinental ballistic missile development really put an end to it, but also the idea like this is just too risky, and they knew it going into it. They were like, you know, we're going to be flying around with armed nuclear weapons. It's far riskier. But it's a great strategy in case the the USSR strikes us, we'll be able to strike back. Um, So it's worth the trade-off. They knew going into it. But after all of these accidents, they finally were like, okay, it's not worth the trade-off anymore. Um, And the last two that really did it in were in January of 1968, I believe. And those, the last two that really did Chrome Dome in, uh, both happened in January, but two years apart, January 66 and January 68. And I think one of the reasons it really hastened the end of Chrome Dome is because they happened on foreign soil, where we had Air Force bases, but were guests of the, the country, and the country that this happened in, the countries that happened in, were not very happy with us for, for allowing these nuclear accidents to take place. Yeah, well, there was one in January, uh, it was a midair, another midair collision during refueling, mm-hmm. which if you've ever seen those midair refuelings, it's a tricky thing. Oh, yeah. So you can see how that would happen. And that's, of course, how Strange Love opens over the opening credits, uh, very famously with the refueling scene um, yep. shot in a very sexual nature. Right. <laughs> uh, on purpose, of course, because it was Stanley Kubrick. But this one was near uh, Palomares, Spain. Nice. Is that right? Um, yeah, I think that's good enough. All right. Um, and there was, like I said, the two planes crashed into each other and four bombs were on board. Four. One, one fell into the ocean, one fell on land, and the okay. other two fell on land and detonated the high explosives. One went to market. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so, yeah, one of them, one went off, I think, uh, and blew up, you said? Uh, Out of the four, that's actually pretty lucky. No, no, no. One of the three that fell on land, two actually detonated the high explosives. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And then one, the one that went in the ocean, like they looked for that for weeks and they finally managed to find it, which based on these Broken Arrow um, reports is is really rare to actually find the bomb. But they found this one in Spain, and then they actually cleaned up the site because this was in Spain. It wasn't just in Texas. Right. <laughs> so they went to the trouble of cleaning up the site, and they removed 1,400 tons of contaminated soil from the crash site where this radioactive material had been scattered by the explosion. Amazing. So that was that was two years before Chrome Dome ended. The last one, the one that really brought about the end of Chrome Dome, was uh, in Greenland, the incident at Thule Air Force Base in Greenland in January of 1968. This one happened in literally, from what I read, the next day Operation Chrome Dome was ended. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So this was a B-52 crash, uh, crashed onto sea ice, and apparently they uh, had to get rid of 237,000 cubic meters of snow, ice, water, and plain junk. Yeah, they removed it to the United States because it was contaminated with radioactivity. So the fact that it happened in Greenland was was bad enough, but the, Greenland was a territory of Denmark at the time, and Denmark had a no-nuke policy, so they were really unhappy with this. Yeah. But what's cool is Denmark forced the U.S. to conduct an environmental estimate and study this stuff to make sure that there were no prolonged effects, and they found that there weren't. Oh, that's good. Um, that's a, what the study turned up. But yeah, but this was back in the 60s, and they're doing this kind of thing. So 
Way to go, Denmark. Uh, I think we should talk about the one over North Carolina, too, uh, even though it jumps back in time. Is that all right? Yeah, I'm fine with jumping back in time. January 24th, 1961, uh, mm-hmm. a B-52 uh, got a fuel leak, starts getting out of control, and this mm-hmm. is, it's, it's trying to get back to its base. The crew ejects, the plane breaks apart and crashes near Goldsboro, North Carolina, and there were two nuclear bombs on board here uh, that <laughs> separated from the plane and fell to the ground. Uh, one of them was fully armed hydrogen bomb, had nuclear material, everything was there for a 3.8 megaton explosion, and it crashed to the ground at high speed and disintegrated without either the high explosive or the nuclear explosion going off into mm-hmm. sort of a swamp. And what happened to the other one? Uh, it actually fell gently to earth. Its parachute <laughs> deployed and it just went, do, 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 it's and like got stuck in a tree. Yeah. And they got it out. A, a hydrogen bomb stuck in a tree with tons of high explosives attached to it, just hanging out. But they managed to, to get that one back. It's amazing when you read through some of these. It looks like, and I know it's not the case, of course. Our military does a great job. But mm-hmm. it, it looks at times like it's a Three Stooges episode. Yeah. Like there was one plane that was pushed off an aircraft carrier that had a nuclear bomb. Just sort yeah. of pushed off the side of the carrier. Off the coast of Japan, and it's still down there from what they, from what we understand. Here's something horrific, Chuck. The pilot was in the plane at the time. Oh, really? They've never recovered the plane, the pilot, oh, or the bomb. Boy. It's just down there in like 12,000 feet of water, I believe. Yeah, I imagine you sink pretty fast. Oh, God, man. Oh, that's just terrible. There was one where a, uh, this was a missile stored uh, ready and armed at an Air Force base in New Jersey when a helium tank burst. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess they were blowing up birthday party balloons. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this did not have a high explosive detonation, but the missile's fuel tank ruptured, and um, the, there was a big fire. A bunch of these, there were fires, like big fires, where they thought, you know, is it going to happen or is it not? <laughs> yeah. And luckily it did not. No, and I th- I'm sure that was a consideration every single time. Like, is this thing going to blow up into a nuclear explosion? I mean, some of these are are just which just would have been massive. The one in um, Goldsboro, North Carolina, we were talking about, had they gone off, it would have been 253 times larger than the Hiroshima blast. Wow. Yeah, it would have been enormous. I mean, look what that one 15 kiloton bomb did to Hiroshima. Imagine 253 times worse over North Carolina. Oh, I'm sure that. I mean, it just that would have been Georgia. It would have been South Carolina. As yeah, far as fallout just, goes. It would have been massive and enormous. And, and, and the fact that we didn't ever, it, for every single one of these, not once did a nuclear explosion go off. It's really a testament to the scientists who designed this thing to be as safe as, as humanly possible. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You got any other ones? Um, and Yeah, I mean, there's some others like um, the USS Scorpion nuclear sub went down. It had a nuclear reactor aboard and a couple of um, nuclear uh, torpedoes. Um like, if you go through this list, there's a substantial number of nuclear bombs, like, out there in, in the Sea of the Philippines, off the Azores, um, off of Tybee Island. Yeah. Just hanging out, waiting around, hopefully indefinitely or forever, and never, you know, going off. But I, I remember that was, like, one of the big concerns among the people living on Tybee is, like, you know, this—, this High explosives are aging. You know, what's going to happen when they reach a certain age? Are they going to become 
are they just going to blow up? And is somebody's boat going to be over the area at the time? Like, what what are we doing here? And the official thing is like, it's, it's just gone and it's safer to just leave it wherever it is than try to move it at this point. Yeah, the other, I think, funny thing Ed included here toward the end was, uh, he says there are hundreds of other incidences that would be classified as bent spears, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, dropping fully armed nukes onto the concrete. He said, Mort, so many times I lost count. <laughs> <laughs> or just like dropping off the wing of an aircraft onto the ground oh, man. when they were doing something. It's um, Isn't that a movie? Wasn't that in a movie? I don't know. That familiar. happened in a movie and it's like, oh, it's just so cringy. It's like uh, Top Secret or something. Hot Maybe. Shots. Maybe. Can only it's think of one. the Zucker Brothers. I went and watched uh, Loaded Weapon. Was that good? Uh, it is. It's good for what it is, for sure, yes. Now, was that the Zuckers? Yeah, I believe it was one of the Zuckers, if not both of them. But Emilio Estevez, he's great. You're a big fan of him. I love it. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good actor. Uh, don't you always champion the uh, the sanitation worker movie? Uh-huh, Men at Work. Yeah, Men at Work. <laughs> it's such a good movie. I still haven't seen that one. You got to see that one. All it's right. got a real plot to it and everything. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, it's Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen. When else are you going to see those two together? Agreed. Thanksgiving, maybe. Yeah, that's right. Christmas time. Um, maybe. Maybe Easter, depending. Maybe they're, bro- they're brothers. I know they are. That's why you'd see them together. That's right. Were you telling me that or telling the listeners that? Oh, I don't know. I'm just talking to the ether. Okay, good. Um, well, since we started talking about Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen, I think uh, it's time for a listener me. And Charles. Yes. Uh, this episode comes out, it so happens, on the 31st, I believe. You, that's New Year's Eve. That's right. I was trying to get you to say it, and uh-huh. you did. <laughs> so a uh, couple of things. Uh, we want to wish everyone a happy new year first, of, of course. course. Um, and also, I want to wish a happy birthday to my dear sweet wife, Yumi. Happy birthday, Yums. Thanks, man. So happy new year, everybody. We hope that it is a spectacular 2020 for you. It's the future now. That's right. So let's all kind of shape up and, and act right for it. <laughs> let's do. Okay. So happy new year, everyone. Uh, and now it's time for listener mail. Yeah, we're going to share a dream here. We don't usually do this because, let's face it, listening to someone's dreams is the worst. <laughs> but this was kind of funny. This is from Cassie. She wrote it at 5.30 a.m. right off the bat after having this dream. Uh, she said, the dream was I run some, uh, won some random drawing, and the prize was to sit down on a recording of a podcast while you were in my area. So you guys come to my cabin, which I don't have in real life. You explain that you want to record the podcast in bed. And uh, so there we are, all three in bed together, wearing button-up jammies that no one really wears in real life. And you guys are, uh, you have your microphones and everything, and you're doing your stuff you should know thing, and I'm just sitting there watching and laughing and learning. Uh, when you decide that you're done and it's time to go to sleep. So we go to sleep in the same bed that you recorded from. Josh is in the middle, and Chuck and I are on opposite ends. Uh, I was extremely self-aware that I roll around in my sleep, and there's no way you guys are going to be able to sleep. And sure enough, after a while, Josh gets up and says, I'm going to go watch TV. I can't sleep. So I was mortified that I kept him up, and then Chuck rolls over and wraps his arm around me and spoons me. And I said, what the heck are you doing? And Chuck says, oh, no, no, no. This isn't a sexual thing. I'm happily married, as you know. But Emily knows that I have to hold on to someone in order to fall asleep, so it's okay. (laughs) So, uh... 
And he says, normally it's Josh when we do these overnighters, but you know. <laughs> so I usually spoon you, apparently. Yeah, well, sure. Everybody knows that. Uh, so now there is no way I'm falling asleep. I told Chuck I was going to go watch TV with Josh. And Chuck says, I can't sleep either. And asks for Pepto-Bismol and winks at me like it's code for something. <laughs> so Chuck starts laughing and says, no, don't worry about the Pepto-Bismol. So then there we are, all three, watching TV on the couch. And you guys are asking for snacks. I open my fridge and I have tons of expired snacks. And I'm embarrassed and realize that the snacks are expired and I never even fed you dinner. You guys that is pretty embarrassing. <laughs> you guys awkwardly pretend to be okay not eating uh, while we're sitting on the couch and your stomachs are literally rumbling extremely loud. And finally, we all fall asleep on the couch. Uh, the next day, you were doing a live show and apparently are great friends with my pharmacist. And my pharmacist posted selfies with Josh lifting weights at the gym before you guys went to do your live show. <laughs> Isn't it crazy where these dreams go? They go all over the place, man. All over the place. I don't and know how they knew that your pre-show routine was lifting weights. <laughs> right. You like to buff up before the show. Sure. Uh, anyway, I'm still laughing now, and I'm definitely going to have uh, a great day because of this dream. Thank you. I'm sorry, and you're welcome. That is from Cassie. Thanks a lot, Cassie. Much uh, appreciated. Um, yeah, we'll just move on from that one. That's right. <laughs> uh if you want to get in touch with us like Cassie did, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com. You can check out our social links there. And uh, you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.